the man of screen. everybody. Welcome to episode four of the Man of Screen podcast. My name is Mike Zumo, and on this this episode, we're going to go through the final four of the famous studio short films. And you know what? I'm at a point where after four episodes, I am happy that we are at the end of the run for these animated cartoons. They started off well under the stewardship of the Fleischer brothers, Dave and Max, but after they were taken over by famous studios the quality deteriorated somewhat and that deterioration didn't show as much in the first four that they produced but toward the end the quality was really low we're gonna have a little bit different themes today we're still gonna get some a couple of world war ii related episodes uh, specifically jungle drums and secret agent but we are gonna go underground and do some archaeology as well with uh, the mummy strikes and uh and the underground world, which introduces us to some Hawkmen. No, not the Hawkmen that you're thinking of from the planet Thanagar, but some Hawkmen that have been living underground in some caves. So, without further ado, I am going to take a quick break, play a promo, and I'm going to come right back with The Mummy Strikes. Justice League International, Blah Ha Podcast a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! And many, many more. Justice League International. Blah Ha Podcast. Coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? All right, folks, welcome back. Like I said, the first episode we're covering on this week's show is The Mummy Strikes, which was released to theaters on February 19th, 1943. It stars Joan Alexander as Lois Lane and Jane Hogan, Jackson Beck as Dr. Wilson and the narrator, Bud Collier as Superman and Clark Kent, for most lines. The last lines in this particular short were done by Sam Parker. And all four of today's synopses will come from Wikipedia. And the synopsis for this one is as follows. At the Metropolis Museum, a local Egyptologist, Dr. Jordan, is found murdered. His assistant, Miss Jane Hogan, finds his dead body in front of the sarcophagus of King Tush. She finds a syringe near the doctor's body. With no other evidence to go on, the police assume that Miss Hogan is the killer. She admits her fingerprints are on the syringe, and she is convicted for the murder. 
A few days later, Clark Kent gets a call from a professor at the museum asking him to come to the museum and listen to another theory on the death of Dr. Jordan. Clark sneaks out, claiming it is his doctor, but out of curiosity, Lois follows. At the museum, the professor explains that Dr. Jordan was killed by a mummy's curse. He takes Clark through the Egypt exhibit at the museum and tells the story of King Tush, which is similar to that of King Tut. Lois follows them and makes sure not to be seen. And while she's not being seen, I'm going to play for you the complete story of King Tush. years ago, the valley of the Upper Nile was ruled by an old and powerful king. He had been warring with the Lower Nile for many years, and just before the old king died, he called his son to him, a young boy of twelve. He commanded his giant guards to wear an oath of eternal allegiance to the boy prince to guard him constantly in this world and the next. Shortly after, the old king died. The youth of twelve now ruled the kingdom of ten million people, but the boy was not fashioned for such responsibility, and being of a sickly nature, soon became ill himself. Never was a person attended more faithfully than this youth, yet he withered away and soon died. True to their oath of allegiance, each of the royal guards drank poison, so that they might continue to protect the spirit of their young king in the Valley of the Dead. Here in these catacombs, Dr. Jordan has reconstructed the burial vault exactly as he first discovered it in one of the pyramids. Working for years in absolute and frenzied secrecy, he finally duplicated an ancient mystic formula, which he called the fluid of life. Just before he was found dead, Dr. Jordan had inoculated each of the mummies of the giant guards. They were supposed to return to life, but somehow the test failed. Dr. Jordan was found here at the feet of King Tush. As they approach King Tush's sarcophagus, the professor explains that Dr. Jordan invoked the curse by trying to open the king's sarcophagus. Clark pushes a button on the side of the sarcophagus and just misses being pricked by a poisoned syringe that shoots out at him. This new evidence seems enough to clear Miss Hogan of the murder charges. Sensing that the needle missed, the sarcophagus opens and a light from the dead king's jeweled amulet awakens its giant guards. The four giant guards attack Clark, Lois, and the Professor. Clark is thrown into a sarcophagus where he quickly changes into Superman. As Superman, he defeats the giant guards and saves Lois and the Professor from a grim demise by fire. Back at the planet, Clark smiles as he finishes the report on Miss Hogan being released from jail. Lois is sitting on the desk. She was injured in the mummy attack and her hands had to be bandaged. She grumbles as Clark finishes his story. Jane... This is one time I've scooped you, Lois. Yes, lucky for you, I was hurt. Incidentally, who told you I was at the museum? My mummy done told me. All right. You know, when I first saw the title of this episode, The Mummy Strikes, I was almost hoping for something similar to Superman number... Five from 1987, I want to say, where Superman fights uh, what those of us who listen to From Crisis to Crisis call mummy rocket boots. 
But nevertheless, there were no mummy rocket boots to be had in this episode. The only reason I thought that might have been the case because that comic on the cover reuses the title, The Mummy Strikes. But no such luck. As far as the animation goes, the color probably should have mentioned before now that was done, all done by Technicolor. You know, the, muse the red hues of the museum gave a very desert feel. Anytime when, anytime when uh, you're watching something based on Egypt or in the desert, interiors are often have those red hues to uh, establish that setting. And there was some more nice shadow work to open the uh, interrogation clip of the museum director's assistant, Miss Hogan. She is the obvious suspect in the case of Dr. Jordan's death, but... If she were the killer, we would not have an episode. So we're just going to continue as Clark gets his phone call and he told Lois his doctor called, and rightly so. And and she's going to follow him anyway. I'm at this point where Lois would follow Clark anywhere. And even if it was his doctor, she would probably follow him to the proctologist, much to everyone's dismay. This actually, something like this comes back in the 90s in Lois and Clark. It was the second episode of the series, the first after the pilot where Perry White has everybody chasing down Superman, the story on Superman, and Clark gets a call that to Lois seemed very mysterious, and when she follows him to a rundown apartment, she realizes that she followed Clark to his new his new place. You know. There's a little little touch there that well, I seen that a long time ago, so this here invoked my memory of that. So I, I enjoy making connections from one version of Superman to another, even if they are a little random and obscure. Okay, now, after Clark has b been told that the mummy's curse is what killed the Dr. Jordan, Clark is sure that this will get Miss Hogan's conviction overturned. Well, I don't know, Clark. I have never studied law, but I'm pretty sure that the mummy's curse is inadmissible. And if such a thing were admissible, I'm sure the judge wouldn't believe it. After all, the judge in Ghostbusters didn't believe in ghosts. Of course, Lois tailed him to the museum. Fortunately for her, Clark didn't go to the proctologist. And, and while Lois is following him, Clark somehow has not noticed her, neither with his supervision or his superhearing. Now, now we got to look underground here at the Egypt exhibit at the museum, the Artwork of the Egyptian hieroglyphics looks very, looks very real, done very well. The exposition of the story of uh, the mummy and Dr. Jordan took more than a minute. You know, when you add in the ending coda and the minute-plus opening sequence, there's only about seven minutes of actual showtime. Just to spend a minute, a minute and a half on exposition is just too long, and it just bogs the story down. When you're doing a 25-minute show, or even a 45-minute show, you can spend a minute or so on exposition, but here it's just too long. So, Clark opens the coffin. It's nice to see him doing some investigating for a change. Normally, all we see is Lois, and but he finds a mummy, which throws Clark into a sarcophagus. No dramatic change, as apparently the sarcophagus is... The perfect place for Clark to change into Superman. And apparently, when Superman comes out of the sarcophagus, the mummy must have eaten his belt, because Superman still has no belt. Now, somebody at, at some point at Famous must have decided that just drawing Superman's belt is far too much effort, and 
that bothers me. That's the first sign of cost cutting, I guess. No belt, because the you know, he's got a belt in that opening sequence. The the inobservant viewer may not notice these things, but I'll bet these things are noticed more than filmmakers or animators would like. The whole thing ends rather anticlimactically as Superman saves Lois and drops some debris on the mummies. It seemed as though the writers didn't have a good way to end the Superman's battle with the mummies. Perhaps if they had spent less time on expositionary dialogue, they might have had time to give us a more satisfying ending than just simply dropping some stuff on the mummies and going right to the, uh, to the end quota. The end quota, rather. And now, oh, the end quota is something else. It is painfully clear that this is not Bud Collier's voice. You know, I'm sure kids at the time didn't notice, but... Oh, the voice is just different. And I guess that's one of the dangers of watching this kind of stuff that you loved as a kid later on as an adult. I remember watching Thundercats several years ago as an adult and realized it was painfully clear that Mumra was not convening with the ancient spirits of evil. He was talking to Panthro. But I'm talking about Thundercats now on a Superman podcast, so that must mean it's time to move on to the next episode. The next episode is... Jungle Drums, and it was released on March 26, 1943. The usual suspects were in the cast, and so here's our synopsis. Deep in the jungle, a tribe of aboriginal warriors are having a celebration. Their leader is a tall man in a white cloak. Secretly, he's a Nazi commander, and the tribe's sacred temple is really an underground Nazi outpost. The Nazis eagerly await the arrival of an American convoy with information about an Allied attack. When a military plane flies overhead, the Nazis shoot it down. The commander sends the warriors to search for survivors. At the wreck site, the mortally wounded lieutenant hands his secret documents to the crew's only survivor, Lois Lane. He tells her to destroy the documents. Then he dies. Lois is caught by the natives and tied up, but frees herself, runs into the jungle, and avoids capture long enough to hide the documents under a rock. She is then captured and brought back to the temple for interrogation, where she is tied to a chair. When she refuses to talk, the commander orders the warriors to burn her at the stake. Meanwhile, Clark and another pilot are flying out to meet with Lois's convoy. They spot the wrecked plane not far from the aboriginal village. Clark parachutes down to investigate. Once on the ground, he changes into Superman. He flies to the village. Lois is already being burned at the stake with the commander watching her. Just then, one of the warriors approaches the commander and gives him a set of papers. It's the, it's the documents Lois hid in the woods. Overjoyed with success, the commander has his men radio headquarters and send the Nazi U-boats to attack the Allied fleet. Clark arrives and saves Lois from burning to death. When the warriors see a man who can walk through fire, they run in terror. The Nazi soldiers futilely fight back against Superman. Meanwhile, Lois takes a spare white cloak and sneaks in to use the radio. The commander catches her, but before he can do anything to stop her, Superman comes to her rescue. She sends a message to the American headquarters, warning them about the Nazi subs. Out at sea, the Nazis prepare to decimate the Allied fleet. Before they can attack, they are bombed by a squadron of Allied B-26 bombers sent in response to Lois's warnings. The subs is destroyed, and the Allied fleet is saved. Meanwhile, in Berlin, Adolf Hitler listens to a news flash about the defeat of his U-boat force. Angrily, he flips a switch on the radio, hangs his head in frustration, as the tune of Praise the Lord and Pass the Ammunition is heard. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition and we'll More World War II. But this time, we apparently have lost interest in Japan, and now we're dealing with the Nazis. And this time, the animation looks really cheap. 
The animators didn't even bother to illustrate the plane crash, just did it off screen as we looked at a jungle scene and saw some shadowy figures with torches running toward the crash. And you can definitely tell Famous is cutting corners to make these shows come in under budget. When Lois is given the papers, you don't even see the pilot's face, they're just, you just see an arm coming from off screen. So they're not even trying here as, when Lois spoke when she was being questioned, her mouth didn't even move. Clearly, we're not, they're not even trying now. You know, at this point, the detail, the Fleischers put in is clearly gone. Everything is blacked out in shadow. Most of the people speaking have their backs to the camera. Just, for as good as the Fleischers were, this episode, as far as the animation goes, is represents the absolute poorest effort on the part of Famous Studios here. So we, we get to a scene of Clark flying over the jungle with hip, in a different plane with the, his pilot. And they are way up over the trees, and somehow his pilot can tell that the plane is empty. From so high up. He, he must have Superman's vision. So, Clark parachutes out of the plane, because apparently Clark needs to parachute. Changes into Superman, to a beltless Superman. I mean, I'm getting to the point where, how much does it cost to animate a damn belt? Whereas the colors were rich on the original Fleischer's, dark color palette is impossible to see. The detail on Superman's costume with the orange and black that is pervasive throughout it, which is just all over the shot. You know, it's hard to watch the poor animation that's uh, being done in these later shorts when you compare it to the detail and care that was put into the earlier ones. And with that being said, I'm going to take a break and then I'm going to come back with the underground world and Secret Agent to wrap up the famous studio animated Superman shorts. Hang around. Okay, doing the new promo. Do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay, go. Hello, darling. Nice to see ya. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please call me Dave. I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday. But now Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at 2TrueFreaks.com, home of Earth's mightiest podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the time to check out Dave's Daredevil podcast, because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil podcast, every Sunday at 2TrueFreaks.com. Take the dare. I have no self-control. Alright, welcome back to... Man of Screen Podcast. The next episode on the agenda here is The Underground World. This was released to theaters on June 18th, 1943. A local scientist, Dr. Henderson, comes to the Daily Planet with a proposition for Perry White. Several decades earlier, Dr. Henderson's father discovered a series of caverns that he named the Henderson Caves. The elder Dr. Henderson explored the caves for several years. Now the younger Dr. Henderson would like to go back to the caverns, and he would like the Daily Planet to fund the expedition. Additionally, he would like Clark Kent and Lois Lane to come along and report on everything they find. Mr. White agrees. Several days later, Clark, Lois, and Dr. Henderson are at the entrance to Henderson Caves, ready to go spelunking. The caverns are part of a river system, so the only way into the caverns is by boat. Lois and Dr. Henderson take the first boat, and Clark follows later. Inside the cave, Lois and Dr. Henderson 
row into a large grotto. They dock on the side of the river, but once they step out, the boat drifts off down the river. A stack of dynamite in the boat is accidentally ignited and causes an explosion that Clark, who's just entering the caverns, can hear outside. Sensing danger, Clark paddles faster. Dr. Henderson and Lois have been captured by a race of hawkmen living in the caverns. The explosion blasted open a hole in their cave, giving them a passage to the surface. Dr. Henderson and Lois are brought before the chief hawkman. They see a statue of Dr. Henderson's father above the chief's throne. Neither of them understands why the hawkmen have a statue like that, or where they got it. The chief signals to the others, and Lois and Dr. Henderson are tied to a stone slab. As Clark enters the cave, he sees Lois and Dr. Henderson being lowered into the giant pot of bubbling gold-colored liquid. Seeing the liquid, Lois looks back at the statue of the elder Dr. Henderson, and suddenly realizes where it came from. The hawkmen had coated him in metal. Now they were about to do the same thing to Lois and the younger Dr. Henderson. Clark quickly changes into Superman, but before he can save Lois and Dr. Henderson, he must first fight his way through an army of Hawkmen. Once he's finished with the Hawkmen, he saves Lois and Dr. Henderson, and wastes no time in getting them out of the cave. The Hawkmen chase after them, but Superman uses more dynamite to cover the entrance to their cave with the rubble. Back at the Daily Planet, Mr. White is impressed by Clark and Lois' findings. It's really a great story, Lois. But no one would ever believe it. He burns the report in the photographs that taken in the caverns. Alright. First and foremost, why would a newspaper finance an expedition like this? I mean, there must be grants for this this sort of thing. I work at a newspaper, and I've worked at newspapers for the last 14 years at this point. I have never once worked for one that financed an archaeological expedition. Most places I've worked barely want to finance their staff, so I just wasn't buying that right off the bat. But what's happened here is called financing for the sake of plot device. So they just shake hands and they're off. I guess this short isn't long enough. That way, you know, the planet can sign the proper insurance paperwork and talk to you know, talk to the lawyers about the liability of sending employees underground. So, more darkness, you know. I guess when you write stories that take place underground or at night, you don't need as detailed animation. Although, the portions of the caves we saw were animated beautifully. A stark improvement over the animation in the jungle drums, which... Just made me angry, especially when compared to the earlier episodes. Now, Lois and Dr. Henderson go first. Clark comes second. He hears the explosion and rows faster. Let me say this again, just in case you missed it. Clark Kent heard an explosion, and the only thing he can think to do is row faster. Is this not enough to warrant a job for Superman? I think it does. But... He's he's going to row. He is not going to change into Superman to investigate the explosion. He is just going to row faster. And continue to call out for Lois and Dr. Henderson. I will admit this. And that's some nice sound work on this episode as when Clark calls the names, there's a nice echo effect. And now... Lois and Dr. Henderson have been captured by the Hawkmen. They're not bad-looking creatures, green with hawk-shaped heads. And while they're getting captured, Clark is still rowing his stupid little rowboat. 
And this is the point where I realized that I must have watched this one before, a long time ago, because I feel as though I've seen this sequence of Clark calling Lois and Henderson before. It's kind of amazing, the little minute details that you remember sometimes. I couldn't, I couldn't re recall anything about the rest of this episode, but I remembered this. The, the Hawkman moved rather stiffly, but whenever there's a lot of the Moyes overshadows, what the uh, studio lacked in fine detail for the Hawkman, they definitely made up for in quantity of Hawkman. And now Lois and Henderson here are, are being lowered into the boiling metal so they can be turned into statues as well. This gave me an Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom kind of feel. Reminded me of the scene where, where Willie is being lowered into the uh, lava or whatever they were lowering her into when while Indy was possessed. However, this time there's no Mola Rob, just uh, a bunch of birdmen. Now, I just noticed during the change that you see Superman putting his cape on. I'm not sure why that struck me, but it did. I guess a part of me always assumes that he's wearing the cape, too. When he, although I can imagine it'd be hard to hide the cape underneath his work clothes. And Superman makes a quick rescue and a bunch of shadowy Hawkmen chase him. Again, we're using the, sh I like the shadow work at first in these episodes, but it's becoming clear here that it's being used to rush the animation and to do it uh, in less time and by spending less money. And these episodes must have been made before Heat Vision was developed. Because Superman uses a grenade to seal the Hawkman into their realm. The, uh, I'm just too lazy to look up when the first appearance of Heat Vision was, but it must have been before this was dealt with. And actually, the only time, fun note, is that no vision power of Superman has been shown since the second Fleischer episode, The Mechanical Monsters, where Superman uses X-ray vision. Since then, it's just all been super strength and flying. So, after their adventure, Perry burns the story because, as an editor, he knows he can't print something that outlandish. It just, the public wouldn't buy it, especially the public in the 1940s. You know, they lost the money, had no story, but the whole thing was done on a handshake, so maybe the fact that there's no story is not binding. Maybe they didn't have to pay the money. But I do love the look on Lois's face as Perry White burns the the story. She's just, she is beside herself. She did all that work, put herself in all that danger, and... She's got nothing to show for it. Henderson's got nothing to show for it. And hopefully the planet didn't waste any money on the expedition. And with that, we're going to go into our 17th and final short animated film entitled Secret Agent. This, like I said, this is the last of the 17. And it was released on July 30th, 1943. Starring Bud Collier as Clark Kent and Superman. Joan Alexander as the secret agent. Jackson Beck as the narrator, police chief, police chief, police officer, and Nazi saboteur. Jack Mercer as Perry White and, and the Nazi saboteur. Clark Kent is driving in town and stops at a drugstore to talk to his chief about covering his, his assignment. Outside, there's a car chase of a group of men that are trying to gun down another car. The gunman's car crashes into the drugstore, and they then they steal Clark's car. Clark then dashes to catch up to the gangsters and grabs onto the rear of his car. As the chase proceeds, the two cars pass by a patrolling police car, who then tries to chase down the gangsters and the victim. The gangsters, seeing the police, try to shoot back at them, but Clark grabs a hold of the gangster's hand and keeps him from shooting by taking his gun and throwing it away. The gangsters use another gun to shoot out the victim's tires and blows them out. 
Realizing there was no way to catch their victim without getting caught by the police, the gangsters speed off with Clark on their rear bumper. The agent, a young blonde woman, steps out of her damaged car and tells the policeman she needs to see the police chief at police headquarters. She explains to the chief that she needs to take records to Washington, D.C. on the largest and most ruthless gang of saboteurs who are just trying to gun her down in the car chase. For six months, she, was, she tricked the gang of saboteurs into thinking she was a part of them, and in that time got records of all the gang members' names, along with their plans, and, and that these saboteurs would stop at nothing to get the records back. Meanwhile, Clark lets himself be captured so he can listen in on the gangsters' plans, and learns that these gangsters are trying to get some records back from the girl, who is a federal agent in reality. So they plan to stop her at the bridge to the airport. She gets a police escort to the airport, but is attacked by more of the gangsters while en route. During the gunfight between the police and the gangsters, the policeman that was driving for the federal agent steps out of his car to shoot back at the gangsters. So the girl gets the, into the driver's seat of the police car and drives through the fighting to the airport. Another group of the saboteurs, positioned at a bridge along the route to the airport, see her driving, and then proceed to get to the controls of the bridge. They turn the bridge to block the federal agent from driving on, but she keeps on driving until she realizes the road isn't connected to the bridge anymore and jumps out of the car. The car then drives off the bridge and crashes into a nearby electrical tower. The federal agent tries to reverse the bridge by getting to the bridge controls, but is nearly shot by one of the gangsters. She reverses the bridge's turning, but the electric tower begins to fall and smashes into the bridge control room. She falls on to the bridge's turning mechanism and is knocked out while the massive gear in the turning mechanism slowly creeps toward her unconscious body. Meanwhile, the gangster on the bridge telephones his superior and tells him that the federal agent is trapped on the bridge and that he is about to get overrun by the cops, but is cut off as the police open fire on him. The boss of the gangsters sees that something went wrong, has one of his men lock Clark in another room, and leaves with the, his henchmen to get the agent's records. Clark breaks his bindings, changes into Superman, and jumps onto the cable of the elevator the gangsters were taking. Pulls the elevator up and ties off the elevator cable with the gangsters above the top floor to keep them from getting to the federal agent. Superman then flies to the bridge and sees that the federal agent is about to be crushed by the bridge's turning mechanism and saves her by derailing the massive turning gear. Knowing of where the agent needs to go from listening to the gangsters, he quickly picks her up before the flaming wreckage of the bridge control tower falls on her and flies her all the way to Washington, D.C. and flies away with a salute to the flag. This is the only episode Lois Lane does not appear in. However, the female federal agent looks identical to Lois, just with blonde hair, and she shares a voice with Joan Alexander. Alright, the first action Clark takes after his car is stolen is he decides to hang on the back of one of the cars. Wouldn't it be easier for Clark to change into Superman and take care of matters that way, instead of going through all of these shenanigans? The, uh... So eventually Clark is allows himself to be captured and is tied up. And this one, the boss of these gangsters here, bears a striking resemblance to Adolf Hitler. So we'll, we'll see uh, one of several gun battles between the cops and the gangsters. This one here looks very well done. The art is great. The animation is far more detailed than it was in the Jungle Drums short. And there was more good, good animation as the electrical tower falls into the control tower and the machine gears 
turn and uh, prepare to turn the uh, secret agent into a into a former secret agent. Let's leave it at that. Superman just explodes through this door, and it almost uh, invo- invokes the memory of what George Reeves would do about ten or so years later. However, I don't understand why he didn't break through the elevator door instead of pull it off, which seemed more difficult. And I like here the idea of Superman tying the cable up to keep the gangsters in the elevator. It's a cute little drawing. I'm looking at, at this shot that uh, of Superman flying down toward the ground. It seems like I've seen that shot before. It's definitely a famous shot, though, because it has no belt. And I promise that is the last time I am going to complain about Superman's lack of a belt. And we, after Superman drops off the secret agent, we are treated to some beautiful drawings of Washington, D.C. This stuff here is just, just gorgeous. And the secret agent lands in front of the Capitol, and there's a shot of Superman flying upward and saluting, and he flies behind the American flag. That shot is just beautiful. It seems like Famous Studios knew this was going to be the last episode, and they went all out on this one. It was a fine effort to end the series, especially after some of the efforts we've seen prior to this one. Jungle Drums really sticks out. That was one that got under my skin because of how poorly it seemed to be done, how little effort was put in. But that was it for the Fleischer famous animated shorts. Basically what happened was that there were budgetary restrictions. The high cost of the series kept it from continuing, and the budget restrictions imposed after the Fleischers were removed just became a problem. The first cartoon had a the first cartoon had a budget of about $50,000 and the other 16 each had a budget of 30,000. And that brought the total cost of the series to about $530,000, which in the 1940s that's a lot of money. In addition, Paramount cited the declining interest in the shorts among theater owners as another justification for ending the series. But the series had a pretty good run, 17 episodes over about Two years. Now, eventually, the rights to all of 17 of these eventually reverted back to National Comics, who licensed the uh, TV syndication rights to Flamingo Films, who later distributed the TV series Adventures of Superman. Eventually, they all fell into the public domain due to National failing to renew the copyrights. And thus, they have been widely distributed on VHS, LaserDisc, and DVD. I mean, you can't you can't blow your nose in a store without running into a copy of these animated cartoons somewhere in the store. At this point, the Warner Brothers, who which owns DC Comics, now owns the original film elements to these cartoons. That was the Fleischer famous animated shorts. I've you know enjoyed. Taking a quick look back at them. Before we get to next week, I'm going to have a special treat for you guys with Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice scheduled to come out in the at the end of this week. I will be dropping on Thursday a, a very special episode, a commentary of 2013's Man of Steel, which is the first film in the newly formed DC Extended Cinematic Universe. So look for that on Thursday. We'll be back here next week and move into live action, where we're going to take a look at the first three chapters of the original Superman serial in, with Kirk Allen from 1948. And I'm going to tell you, folks, live action is my sweet spot. So I'm really looking forward to that. I hope you're looking forward to it, too. You can send feedback to the show, manofscreen at gmail.com. 
You can find the show on Facebook by searching Man of Screen Podcast. I will see you next time. Until then, I will be around. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zimo, and all opinions on the show are those of Mike Zimo and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright, they are original copyright holders. The Man of Screen Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com, and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.